catching stones, catching stones. If you go down to New Orleans, to the municipal courthouse, you will see the grandmother seated there on the marble steps leading up to the main courtrooms. She sits there catching stones. She's unmistakable. You will see that she has high heel white patent leather shoes without a smudge or a streak on them. And she'll have on either a blue floral or a red paisley print dress with nary a wrinkle to be seen. And she'll have on her Sunday go to meeting white hat, sometimes with the flowers of the season adorning the brim. And it'll be, and it'll be dipped just a little bit over her right eye. That's what she wears when she's catching stones. The celebrated young attorney Brian Stevenson saw her seated there not too many years ago. He had just come out of the largest courtroom in the New Orleans courthouse where he had won the freedom of two teenage boys who had been sentenced to death row at Angola. A fate, well, as you can imagine, is horrendous. When he walked out, he saw the woman seated there and she summoned the young button-down attorney to herself. He walked over somewhat warily and she said, young man, I'm not getting up, but you've been down here where I can give you a hug. Not knowing what else to do, the uptight attorney bent down and lost himself completely in her big embrace. When she finally let go of him and he could lift up, he didn't know what else to do but say, oh, um, um, ma'am, I, I saw you in the courtroom today. Was one of those boys your grandson? No, sir, she said. I'm just here to catch the pain. This building is full of pain and somebody needs to sit here and catch some of it. And then... Brian Stevenson said, well, ma'am, uh, how long you been doing this? And she said, ever since my grandson was murdered. He was my entire life. I doted on that boy like no other. And when he was murdered, I thought my life was coming completely apart. And so they found the two that, that done it. And I decided, I decided that I would be down here every day during, those, during uh, those court sessions. I didn't even leave the room to use the bathroom. I didn't miss a single minute. And when the finally, when the judge, when he, when he put, when he tossed down his sentence that those two boys would be sent away for life at Angola, I thought I'd have release. But I didn't. I thought I'd feel a lot better. But it didn't happen. And I walked down, I walked down out of the courtroom and all like as far as I could get was this step right here. And so I just sat down and I began to weep every single tear out of my head. Eventually I was so convulsed with sobbing that, um, that a young woman came over and she sat next to me worried about me. And once I finally was able to kind of get control of myself, the woman said, um, ma'am, was one of those boys yours? 
And I finally lifted my head up and my face was puffy and my eyes were still dripping and tears were still jumping off my chin. And I said, no, no, those two boys killed my grandson. But they're just boys. They're just boys. And at that, that young woman's eyes got as big as silver dollars. And she got up and looked at me as if I was the craziest human being on the face of the earth. And that was the most unreasonable thing she had ever heard. And she backed away and she didn't say one more thing. That's what I knew. That's when I knew that I had to be here every single day to catch some of the hate that's being thrown around in this room. Somebody has to catch it. And it might as well as be me. Well, Attorney Stevenson, this, this point was more than curious. He goes, well, ma'am, wh why do you do it? Young man, you know the story. You know the story as well as I do. The, the leading men in that, in that town found that woman in the throes of passion. And they pulled her out of that bed and they brought her out before Jesus and they encircled her. And one of the men said to Jesus, Hey, Rabbi, what do you think we ought to do with this here woman? And Jesus didn't answer him directly. He got down on one knee and started doodling in the dirt. And without looking up, he finally said to all those bigwigs in town, he said, yeah, go ahead. The first one of you gentlemen without sin, draw back and throw the first rock. And Jesus didn't look up and the woman didn't look up. But pretty soon it sounded like a hailstorm. All those stones hitting the dust. And when the woman finally did look up, and Jesus too, he, Jesus asked the woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, right in the throes of passion, he said, uh, ma'am, where are your accusers? She said, they're gone. And Jesus says, neither do I accuse you. Go, go now. And sin no more. Well, at this point, after hearing that, Stevenson made his one bad mistake in this conversation with the woman sitting on the step with the white hat on. He said this, which really nice what you're doing. And here she reared up and says, Young man, it's not nice. It's not nice. And it's not reasonable. But I'm a stone catcher. And that's what I've been called to do. It's not nice. And it's not reasonable. My brothers and sisters. Whom I love in this church. If you want nice and tidy. If you want reasonable. You better tune in to Satan. Because that's his best ploy. He loves to get at us with reasonableness. Take this confrontation between Jesus 
and Satan in the wilderness. Jesus hadn't eaten anything or drunk anything in 40 days. And he is famished, says the scripture. And Satan gives, makes the most reasonable offer you can imagine. If you are the son of God, change these stones into, uh, into Pepperidge Farm loaves of bread and feast. If you're the son of God, make enough bread for yourself. And while you're at it, make enough bread for everybody else. Make a quick fix of it. And Jesus responds, man does not live by bread alone. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I will not fix this thing, says Jesus. But I will wait on the grace of God. I will wait on the grace of God. Pretty unreasonable response. You know, what Satan wants Jesus to do is become sort of a General Mills or a Kellogg's and start churning it out. Let him be, the, let him be the, uh, the answer to world hunger and all the pain in the world. You just go ahead and churn it out. Make a fix of it, Jesus. He said, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to wait on grace. You see, for all these years that I've been teaching this, peril, this, this encounter on the first Sunday of Lent, I thought, what a great, what a great kind of you know, instructional tale. Here's, here's Jesus telling us how to kind of how to get around the devil's schemes. You know, don't take shortcuts. Don't, do, don't make yourself the center of a creation. You know, uh, make sure that you don't let the devil take you off the right path. And I was completely wrong. This is not a morality tale. This is not a strategy session. This is the cosmic battle between what the universe will hold dear. Will the universe be centered on the, on the works of humanity or will it be centered on the grace of God? Which one? And Jesus says, I choose grace. I choose grace. Just like that woman sitting on the marble steps. Does it make a lot of reasonable sense to sit there and, and pray and catch the pain that's been, that has, that's been fomented by young people and old people. They're doing dastardly things. No, it makes no sense at all. It makes more sense just to condemn them. But that's not grace. And that's not God. That's man. We're the church. We're an unreasonable bunch. Because we'll wait on the Lord. We'll be stone catchers. Stone catchers. And God doesn't go in for the quick fix. Because fixes don't work. I'm going to make a universal statement here. That I've had to learn the hard way. People do not want to be fixed. They want to be loved. People do not want to be fixed. They want to be loved. And if they're loved, they will be fixed by the author of, uh, by the author of transformation, the Lord himself. Think about the woman standing there in the dust. She was guilty. Sure she was guilty. So was the dude that got away. 
Just like you and I are guilty, we're standing in the dust. The Lord doesn't give her a lecture. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now that you know that you are beloved, now that you know you are treasured, you will be transformed. That's the way the grace of God works. If you think people want to be fixed, try it in your family and see what a train wreck you get. That hit a nerve, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And while we're on this subject, when the vestry came together two Monday nights ago, the senior warden and Andy Anderson led us to set our goals for the year. And the vestry always does that. But this year was a little different. The vestry only set two goals, two goals. And the first one was happened so fast that Scott Kitayama, the chief of staff, and I were just kind of going, what? All 12 vestry members immediately said, our number one goal is that Christ Church become a more diverse congregation. Number one, unanimous vote. And then I thought about that a lot. And I realized that... Um, you can't become a diverse congregation because you have a great program. You can't have, you can't become a diverse, multiracial, multi-economic congregation because you have, you have, uh, you know, airtight strategy. You can't become, you can't become a community where the ages cross over in, in, in harmony uh, and in and, and, and a community of meaning because, because you, really, you, really made, you really made a good effort. Because people aren't programs, people aren't strategies, people aren't efforts. People are the children of God. And they will only come if they know this is a community of stone catchers. Can you say amen to that? Amen. People don't want to come to church to be fixed. They want to come to church to be beloved. And if we're those things, watch it happen. Watch it happen. We have to be that first. We have to be that. You know, to me, the most prophetic thing that was said at the vestry retreat was Tobin Simpson Hayes. Grew up in this congregation, went off, became a fancy architect. As soon as she got back, I mean, before she even passed the architectural exam, she was back in this church. You know what she said at the vestry retreat? She said, you know what I remember best about my, my life at Christ Church? She says, when I was eight years old, I knew everybody in the congregation who was 80. And they loved me and I loved them. There was a crossover. And I want us to be that I want us to be a congregation that is black and brown and tan and white and all shades in between. And I want us to be a place where people that live in gated communities can be, can be in communion with those who are having a hard time putting a roof over their head. I want that. I believe Christ wants that. But it only happened if we're going to be the beloved community. You know, the only community on earth that's centered around that table is the church. We don't come here because we're going to hear eloquent words. You might occasionally. 
Very occasionally. Okay, almost never. <clears throat> and you might, you, you, you might be enlivened by the music or by any number of things, but we come here because of that table. And from that table, God reminds us that he is pouring out his love for you and me in the ultimate sacrifice where he says, I'm not going to fix you first. I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you. So this, this land, if we'll become stone catchers, I believe the Lord will break open the rock-hard egos that we're carrying around. And I also believe that we'll be ready to receive others. And I know for a fact, we'll have the best Easter ever. Let us stay.